Hello, my name is David Ian McKendry, former Fangoria video producer and writer back in the early 2010s, and now podcast host of this show, Penning Terror. Now, each episode of Penning Terror, I'll be interviewing renowned horror writers to get their insight into the craft of horror writing and the business in general from a writer's perspective. This show is for both up-and-coming writers out there that are looking for advice from professional working writers, as well as you non-writers out there who are just curious about the process or just want to hear an in-depth, behind-the-scenes account of how your favorite horror films got onto the page. Whatever brought you here, I hope you enjoy the show and that you walk away with something useful from it. And now on with Penning Terror. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. You're distracting me. You're distracting me. And it will then take me time to get back to where I was. You're distracting me. It's 2020 and surfing the web is dead. All the horror news you need is now just one click away. Fangoria.com is your first destination for all the horror news of the day, featuring a constant curation of the Fango team's favorite links from across the internet. You'll also find deep dives and daily thoughts from the biggest names in horror, as well as exclusive access to the Fangoria vault. Check out Fangoria.com for yourself and see the horror right before your eyes. Use promo code PENNINGTERROR for 15% off right now. Now, that's promo code Penning Terror, P E N N I N G T E R R O R, for 15% off right now. Hey, gang. Today on the show, I'm going to be talking with writer, horror novelist, and short story writer Paul Tremblay. He comes by to uh, sit down and chat with us about his latest short story collection called Growing Things. Uh, He's also going to tell us a little bit about his novel Head Full of Ghosts and a potential Oz Perkins film that might be coming up uh, regarding that property. Uh, A little bit on mass-produced Ouija boards in Salem, Massachusetts, and uh, as well as his writing process and his editing process so sit back enjoy the show and uh here we go Welcome to Penning Terror. My guest today is Paul Tremblay, um, author of Head Full of Ghosts, uh, Cabin in the End of the World, Growing Things, the new book out. Uh, I got all that right. <laughs> you so did. Good. Yes. Awesome. Uh, I got to say, I, 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 the first book I read of yours was uh, A Head Full of Ghosts. Um, I got to say, this... They're so rare that a book just like makes me just jaw drop uh, <laughs> huh. with every just twist of it. Like so many, so many times that I just say, "Oh well, I didn't expect that to come <laughs> to oh, happen." Wow, thank you so much. Oh yeah, and, and what? Uh, just in general, what was the 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 the, the starting off point for for getting that story? So yeah, so that book for me was one of those like eureka moments that you dream about as a writer because I was actually a hundred pages into a totally different book. You know, it's sort of like grinding my gears. And to uh, try to, I guess, reset the brain a little bit, I was reading some nonfiction. I happened to be reading um, a book of essays on The Exorcist. Um, Centipede Press, I'm not sure if you're aware of them. They're like mm-hmm. a specialty press in like Denver. Mm-hmm. But they do this wonderful, ser- they call it series, uh, 
Yeah, it's series in the night film. I think it's what it's called, or studies of the night film. You know, and they pick a movie, and they you know they have they collect essays and interviews. So they did one for The Exorcist, and while I was reading it, um, there were there were a few essays sort of breaking down the movie sort of politically or, or contextualizing it for the time that it was made. And it was like, huh, I never really thought of The Exorcist in those terms. Like to me, like just growing up, that was like, oh, that was the scariest movie ever made. Right. Um, so, like, reading those essays and also, like, just taking a step back and thinking, geez, you know, this was 2013 at the time. It's like no one's really written, like, a possession or exorcist book mm -hmm. in a long time. Like, Hollywood continues to pump out, you know, the PG-13 sort of exorcist light right. movies, but no one's really done, like, a deep dive book on it. So, I'm like, yeah. oh, how would I do it? And it sort of just, like, just exploded from right. there. And I, one of the things I noticed of it that, that really drew me in was the, the point of view you use is, is, is a point of view you don't really see in this like the the little sister of the person possessed that's uh, how did the the idea for that point of view come about yeah so i mean almost instantly i had the idea of the two sisters and i i knew i definitely wanted to tell the story from the point of view of the younger sister so the one who wasn't obviously going through what you know what marjorie was going through the older sister um and part of it was because i knew pretty early on i wanted to play like the you know play it ambiguously uh, or even almost like skeptically, like that was sort of my initial idea. Like, oh, I'm going to do like a skeptical, mm -hmm. <laughs> secular possession novel. But you know, once once I got into, it, I was like, no, I really need to play it ambiguous, and really, you know, this is not a spoiler for for people who haven't read the book, you know, because I never outright tell you if she was possessed or not. That's sort mm -hmm. of up to you to figure out, you know. So I I knew like what what better way to do it than have the story told through the eyes of this younger sister because. You know, at that age, she's not going to quite know what's going on. And then, obviously, years later, she's going to you know, be relying on her memories, which is inherently sort of unreliable. Right. Putting the puzzle together sure. in her head afterwards. Yeah, and I, I, I loved how it always... Uh, she, you, she only got the information that an eight-year-old could possibly get. Right. And, and, yeah, and I loved how you filled in those blanks with her. Um, so, yeah, that was just one of... Became one of my favorite books. Oh, thank you very <laughs> so, much. Um, so... Uh, your new book out now is uh, Growing Things, which fans of your work are going to recognize that title. Uh, so was that story written before? Uh, yeah, so Growing Things did exist before I had Full of Ghosts. I think I wrote it in like 2009. Mm -hmm. and it actually appeared in a slightly different form in an older short story collection called In the Meantime that mm -hmm. was published in 2010. Um, so when I was writing A Head Full of Ghosts, I knew I was going to have the sisters communicate with story. And so I was like, oh, it, it, that's the growing thing story sort of occurred to me, and I put it in a head full of ghosts. And actually, it was just one of those things that to me it worked out perfectly because it sort of became like a theme, you know, mm -hmm. throughout a recurring motif even throughout the whole story. Um, yeah, so it was kind of fun to go back to that short story now that after a head full of ghosts has come out to sort of like almost like reboot it right. a little yeah. bit for myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very cool. Um, yeah, and uh, it, it's really neat when I when I – saw the title i was like hey that's <laughs> hold on I, i've seen that somewhere Thanks. before and it's it's nice to see that reoccurrence going back to a little bit about point of view how do you realize you're saying too much that this character wouldn't get or or, or, or too little um that's a good question i i sort of almost imagined it. i didn't worry about the too much because you know again once i sort of settled on the idea for headful ghost uh, for example and, and that sort of level of ambiguity um Normally, you know, normally you think, oh, if it's ambiguous, the author is withholding information. Mm -hmm. And I thought the fun part of A Head Full of Ghosts was I was doing it sort of the opposite way. I was flooding the reader with as much, you know, data overload. Mm -hmm. And to me, I was like, oh, that's sort of like a nice parallel for what we're living through right now. Sort of, 
know, this age of slash informa information and misinformation, right? We're just right. sort of inundated with all this information. It's up to us to figure out what's real and what's not. Mm -hmm. So I worried less about, you know, if I was telling too much. Um, if I did, I felt like if I was telling maybe giving too much on one side of the is something supernatural happening or not argument, I tried to make sure I built up the other side. So I was more worried about keeping like a, a balance. Like if you imagine <laughs> it's a balance, right? With the laws of justice, right? Those things. Like yeah. I sort of in my head imagined I needed to keep those from not tipping one way or the other. Right. And it's, it's one of those things where you just, you don't automatically just say, Oh, I know the end of the story. And now I, I get it. It's, sure. It's, it's, a, it's yeah. and clear. And with, and with the head full of ghosts, I mean, it's different with some of the other books and stories, but with that one, I definitely tried especially when I got, you know, deeper into the book and towards the end, uh, I definitely divorced myself from thinking there is a one true answer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I always thought of it. There's two possible ways. Like, mm -hmm. you know, there's two possible paths you could go. I mean, right. there's more paths that could branch out from there. But when I say the two possible paths, there is no supernatural happening. There is something supernatural happening. Right. And did you and you always knew you weren't going to really clearly say that in the in the story. Yeah, not for that book, right. I always knew I wasn't going to answer it because to me, the ambiguity is part of the story. Like, right. is to me sort of the horror of that story. Like, you know, Mary, the character herself, you know, does she know what happened? I mean, does she know what happened to her? Does she, you know, how, how does she live with that? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and one thing I want to talk about is uh, how do you ride that line of who owns the truth in the story? Because um, I know with uh, cabin mm. at the end, uh, cabin at the end of the world, you um, you you ride that line of what is this the end of the world? Is right. it not? And you do the same thing in Head Full of Ghosts. And it's how do you keep that square down that line? Oh, that's a great. I like how you phrase that. Who owns the truth? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> both books were similar in a ways where I, I was trying to keep you know, build those paths to believability to use like onerous election mm -hmm. <laughs> terminology. Like you need a path to victory. It's just like, you need to have a believable path. So I, I sort of, I focused on those, but I also really tried to, um, keep the story, I guess, grounded. Like, um, part, part of what I was doing at the head full of ghosts was to me, you know, other people could argue differently, but to me, I was like, Oh, this is what would happen if somebody was, or wasn't possessed. Like mm -hmm. there'd be a reality TV crew. That would come in, right? And it would be difficult to, to figure out. Um, you know, some of it is just my own personal beliefs, especially when I'm writing the longer novels, because I feel like personally, you know, 95% of the time I'm like a non-believer in anything supernatural. Mm -hmm. But like 5% of the time, I am. And that 5% right. would be if I'm home by myself and it's really dark right. <laughs> or I wake up after a terrible dream. Yeah. So... I don't know. I kind of think that if I were to experience something that's supernatural in real life, I think I would have a hard time identifying it mm -hmm. as supernatural. I don't think it was. I don't think it would be something as obvious as like, I don't know, Slimer coming down the hallway, right? <laughs> yeah, and right. Ectoplasm everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I would have a hard time identifying it. I think it would just nag at me. But I would probably try to always um, rationalize it away, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. for for those two stories in particular, I kind of approached it from that point of view. Like, well, even if something weird is happening. There must be some sort of rational explanation. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then just sort of zoom in on, like, the particular character's experience. Yeah, and you hear that bump in the night. You're not immediately going to, okay, there's a monster at my door. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to no, explain no, it away first. <laughs> yeah. um, so... Uh, I, I, I found out in researching you, you, you uh, like your character in one of your books, you worked at a, a toy factory. I'm I very did, curious yes. about that. Um, what, uh, do you, do you, is that something that uh, helped you build that character? Or? 
Or... Well, it's funny, like it seems to be the older I'm getting and the more stories I'm writing, I'm putting more sort of autobiographical yeah. details. Sort of the old joke is that your first novel is always the most autobiographical. Yeah. It seems to me it's going, <laughs> the, the more I'm writing, the more autobiography sort of seeping in. But yeah, my, my father for 25 years worked at Parker Brothers uh-huh. uh, before they were bought out by Hasbro in the early 90s. Um, and Parker Brothers actually had their their factory was in Salem, Massachusetts, and it was a big old factory built in like I don't know 1920, maybe even before that. Um, and during high school and summer colleges, I worked at the factory. So oh, okay. you know, I worked on some of the assembly lines. You know, I helped you know as people putting the you know Monopoly money in. You know, right. I was like <laughs> making sure that their bin was full of you know Monopoly stuff and. Yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, it was hard work, but it was also kind of a fun summer job to have. Okay. Too. Yeah, I, I hear. You know, I hear something like working at a toy store, a, t- a toy uh, manufacturer, right. and I automatically go to like the horror of what probably <laughs> goes on behind the scenes. There. I used to be totally, as a little kid, freaked out by Ouija boards. Again, the okay. whole believer non-believer thing. Right. But I, I will say, I, it lost a little bit of the creepiness when I saw the mass produced. <laughs> yeah. You know, by the hundreds. Right. And you uh, saw the, the the guy at the end that was cursing each one as it, before it went to the box. Yeah. Well, my di- my father did tell me when he was working in the mail room I, you know I, he, he might have been just been like pulling my leg on this which mm-hmm. I'm sure but he said oh yeah there was like an old woman who came to Parker Brothers with like a really dirty beat up Ouija board and she brought it to him in the mail room she said every time I try to throw it away it keeps coming back it can only be destroyed at the place where it was created and like you know she left it with him and left the building I, and, and I hope that's true I don't know if it's well true. they're made in Salem now and now that I know that they're made in Salem that's uh, even more frightening yeah, so. not, yeah not anymore you'd have to find the old Ouija boards because once Hasbro bought them out they shut down the uh-huh. they shut down the plant which to me was I think a formative part of my writing life I feel like mm-hmm. I've always and I was actually in the lunchroom when mm-hmm. they announced the whole factory that they were closing the plant. Oh, wow. It was a surprise. No, I mean, people knew that they were going to get bought, right. but they had been bought by like Tonka before, and you know there were some changes, but nothing as drastic as that. So wow. there was one summer afternoon. I think I was twenty, not done with college yet, and they everybody into the room. Summer help. People have worked there for twenty five years. You know, wow. the people in suits, the people on the assembly line, just everybody in the factory called them in and said, you know, Hasbro bought us, and they're closing the plant in two months. <laughs> wow. See you later, sort of. Wow. No, I mean, so it was an, you know, a horrifying, just, you know, real life moment. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I've more than a few stories I've mentioned the Parker Brothers thing. Yeah. It's always sort of <laughs> part uh, there in, in a story and growing things. Um, uh-huh. Notes from the Dog Walkers, it's sort of brought up again, but mm-hmm. I actually write about it a little bit more non-fictional wise with like, at the end of the short story collection, I, I include like notes about where the stories came from, and I talk oh, about the Park Brothers thing a little bit more. Nice, nice. Do you do you do a lot of nonfiction writing as well? Or? I don't. That to me, that's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all I mean, all writing is very hard. But uh, you know, I was a math major in college, so I, you know, I I wasn't an English major writing papers. So mm-hmm. like writing like nonfiction essays for me takes me longer normally mm-hmm. than writing fiction. I'm getting a little bit better at it, but. Now, I wanted to talk about that math major thing. <laughs> okay. Because um, I've, I've known a number of people who have majored in math, and they always have a creative edge to them, mm. whether it's writing or painting. Is there something about math that, that lends itself to creativity? That's great. You know, it's funny. I do think, and even looking back to the graduate school that I went to, there, were, there was a guy who had a band. And I went to University of Vermont. Mm-hmm. You know, he had a band that was, like, the most popular in town. And, you know, there there were some definitely, you know, creative people. And there also were sort of the stereotypical, <laughs> you know, just math with, like, crazy hair and, right. <laughs> you know, glasses and whatnot. Um, I think especially for music, it makes sense to me. I mean, because uh-huh. music is so so mathematical right. just with the structure of music. And 
um, you know, the rhythms, et cetera. So I don't know. It's kind of hard for me to explain, like, how I, I went from math to, uh -huh. to writing. And if anything, if I had my druthers, the first thing I tried creatively was I wanted to be a punk guitarist. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> You know, so when I first started messing around with writing, I was also, like, playing guitar and writing some, like, really terrible songs. Right. But yeah. I found out I was a better writer than a musician, unfortunately. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, yeah, I had that same uh, punk rock dream that turned yeah. into me just writing. Because <laughs> <laughs> I never took guitar lessons, so I figured, I, yeah, I found same. out that was that right. was a big part of being a musician, was learning how to play guitar. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this is going to sound really lame, but for me, like, one of the big hurdles was just the gear. It's like, you mean I don't just get to plug into the amp? Like, it just seemed like, oh, you have to, you know, get these chorus pedals and all these mm -hmm. other things, and I was just like, ah, because I'm not a very handy person. Yeah. It certainly wasn't <laughs> in the 90s. Yeah, I bought, um, a, I bought a guitar, and then I, I bought an amp, and I was like, why yeah. doesn't this sound like, right. like all the bands I like? <laughs> oh, you need a pedal, and you need this. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's ah, too much. It's too much. Too much. I started reading astrophysics books, and it just the, it seems so creatively bent, though it's so based in math. That, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's that's definitely accurate. I think the higher level of math and physics, it does seem to be like just totally creative. I mean, mm -hmm. this whole other language. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, <laughs> I, I got my master's by the skin of my teeth. I, I, there was no way I was going to get my PhD in math. <laughs> I was good enough to get that. Um, so tell me a little bit about your, your editing process, your editing and rewrite process. So I, um, maybe this is where the math part comes in. I feel like I, I'm a little bit more analytical when I write. Mm -hmm. and so I wish I was a writer that could just like, Bleh, and like spill it all out. Yeah. I, I can't do that. I can only work. I typically aim for like maybe 500 words a day. Yeah. And depending on where I am in the novel, like I found it with the most recent novels, like when I'm first starting out, it's really slow. It's probably like, I'm lucky if I have 200 to 300. But by the end of the book... You know, I'm getting my 500s, maybe even like seven, eight, mm -hmm. or a thousand at the very end of the book. But um, I always edit as I go, mm -hmm. and whatever I wrote the day before, um, I start the next day by going back over what I wrote the day before. Okay. And if it's a novel, I typically go to the beginning of that chapter. So by the time I've finished like a full draft, it's actually I've, I've rewritten a whole most of it. Mm -hmm. You know, as I'm going. You know, so it's not to say I won't rewrite it afterwards. You know, I still definitely read through it and rewrite it. All right. Um, but the final draft, I guess, is a little bit more clean than mm -hmm. those who just like, you know, sort of spill it out and, you know, write and rewrite yeah. after that. Yeah. But, you know, it's it's what works for me. I know it doesn't work for everybody. Mm. It's it's weird. It's like I, I don't even know what to call it because when I'm finished, like, I guess it's a first draft. But, you know, I've really edited and yeah. cut, like everything that's come before it, like tons and tons of times. Yeah, you go over it. Yeah. So, and, yeah. So that's, that's, it's I'm, just a different way to get to the end of, I guess, the near final draft. Like I still all print it out and. Hmm. Usually read it out loud before I, you know, hmm. and then, you know, now I have an editor in place, you know, hmm. with my publisher. So, yeah, you know, I still have to go through all that. Can you, uh, can you talk to us a little bit about what's, uh, what's going on with Head Full of Ghosts right now? Are, are you able to talk about that yet? Uh, a little bit. Um, okay. It's, I, I will say it's sort of like an interesting position where it could, it could, it could actually happen like later this fall or, or maybe, hmm. or maybe not. It's sort of like. It's, there's enough like in the process where typically like it's up for the people who are going to put money into this thing to decide if they're actually going to put the money into it. Mm -hmm. But you know they have Osgood Perkins as the director. Nice, and, nice. Uh, I know that they love the screenplay that he wrote. Mm -hmm. uh, they do have an actress in place for Mary. You know I can't say who, who her name is. But, uh -huh. You know so they have like the, some really major pieces. It's just a matter of you know someone with who's willing to to put the millions up. Right. To yeah, say, yeah. Yeah. This is a go. What you all, so, we always have to wait for around here. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it's close, uh -huh. but 
I guess it's Hollywood close. Like right. Hollywood yeah. close, I guess means I've come to find out means wow, it could happen or it could just all fall apart and you're back to square one. Right. So. Well, I never know. Yeah, I would. I would love to see a, a film version of it. It's uh, so visual in the way you wrote in, in the way you wrote it. It's. Uh, I would love to see what they can yeah, what they thanks. do on the screen and, with it. And I'm a huge fan of Oscar Perkins, so yeah. I, I think he's just like a perfect match for. Yeah, so the tone, hopefully, and in the, in the feel of the book. Yeah, his uh, his last film was um, um, I'm going to I'm gonna trip over the name of the film. I am I the n- pretty thing that lives in this house. Thank you. <laughs> and then um, Black Coat's daughter. Black Coat's daughter. I was thinking, yeah, that's uh, that's great, nice tone. I feel like that that, oh, that sounds great. No, he makes beautiful movies. Before we uh, let you get out of here, I want to know what's going on with Growing Things now. So, I mean, it came out July 2nd. Um, so there's 19 stories, so, which is a lot. I mean, it really sort of, mm-hmm. it's not everything I've written in the past 15 years, short story-wise, but I kind of feel like it's sort of like a best of mm-hmm. of my short fiction from the past 15 years. Um, there's a purposeful, you know, not all the stories. So if you haven't read A Head Full of Ghosts or anything else that I've written, you can read all the stories and hopefully <laughs> find them to be creepy and fun. All right. <laughs> um, but there are some of, some of the stories do have a connection to A Head Full of Ghosts. So the title story... Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the first story in the collection, you know, features Mar- Mary and Marjorie from Headful of Ghosts, but in a different story, basically telling each other a story about these um, plants that are sort of just growing without check and sort of basically taking over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last story in the collection is called The Thirteenth Temple, and that takes place after Headful of Ghosts. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's definitely not a, I wouldn't call it a sequel of any kind. It's a very short, small story mm-hmm. where um, Mary is confronted by a fan at San Diego Comic-Con because <laughs> the book on her life, A Head Full of Ghosts, has come out. Right. Um, and, the, and for whatever reason, she decides to tell the fan a Marjorie Mary-style t- uh, story. Mm-hmm. And that's really the bulk of the story. The frame is Mary with the fan. Um, the bulk of the story is the, the weird Marjorie Mary story that she tells. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, but the rest of the collection there is... Um, I would say one of the, you know, one of the themes that that goes through it is, you know, there's a lot of stories either about families or, or about parents or or vice versa. Um, the other, so there are two stories that I wrote just for the collection. I guess would be the last thing I would say about it. Um, so I wrote the Thirteenth Temple just for the collection. The other story is called Notes from the Dog Walkers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's novella length, um, and the title sort of. Uh, hopefully it sort of sounds funny, but it, the story is actually told by notes left from dog walkers or, or, or these three people who are walking the dog mm-hmm. of a horror writer named Paul Dash Dash Dash. <laughs> so that, that story gets very meta and very strange and you know, ho- hopefully kind of fun. Cool. Very nice. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing reading. I'm just halfway through it, but right. I'm loving what I'm reading. So... Uh, one of the things I want to do, I, I usually ask uh, screenwriters some movies they recommend, but... Okay. You're a novel writer, okay. so what are what are some novels you can recommend for? Uh... Oh, novels! Uh, I should have did my homework. Uh, no, I was not sent homework. I'm uh, sorry. No, I should have okay. sent homework. Well, actually, when I do this, because um, I have more at the top of my, my or at the tip of my tongue, since Growing Things is a short story collection, mm-hmm. there's, we've had quite a few really good horror short story collections come out in the last year or two. Mm-hmm. So I would recommend uh, first Mariana Enriquez's Things We Lost in Fire. Okay. Yeah. Uh, she's an Argentinian writer. It's her first full book um, translated into English. She's had many works appear, mm-hmm. like in the New Yorker and Granta, like really big sort of literate or literary magazines. But this is a horror story collection. Mm-hmm. Um, the first story is borderline brutal horror story. I mean, it's amazing. But she has like a, a Shirley Jackson-ish kind of story. She has a Lovecraftian kind of story. Like the, the range of stories that she has in that collection is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also recommend Nathan Ballingrude's 
uh, Wounds, which just came out this spring. Uh, the title Wounds is a reference to a movie that hopefully I think will be out later this fall. Um, Babak Anvari, I think, I believe he did the movie Under the Shadow. Mm-hmm. Um, so Babak uh, made the movie Wounds based on one of Nathan's novellas, which appears in this this collection uh, of stories. The other sort of uh, thing I would mention about Nathan's collection for for the Clive Barker fans out there, I think his collection is the closest you're going to get to a Clive Barker short story mm-hmm. collection. Oh, nice! Um, yeah. The the especially the last yeah. novella. Um, I'm, I'm terrible with titles. I think it's like The Beggar's Table or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, No, The Butcher's Table. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so Clive Barker, without being pastiche. Right. Like, it's definitely Nathan's stuff, mm-hmm. but, you know, it, it feels like Books of Blood era Barker. Nice, yeah. I'm a, which I don't say that lightly. The new book is Growing Things and Other Stories. It is out now. Please check it out. Thank you so much for stopping by Thank and you, Dave, talking to me. It. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, be sure to pick up Paul's book, Growing Things. Uh, It's an amazing anthology of horror short stories, and be on the lookout for a a film adaptation of his novel, Head Full of Ghosts, which if you haven't read, I highly recommend you go out and get a copy and and read that and find out why Stephen King said this book scared the hell out of him. So, until next time, keep writing. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration. You're distracting me. You're distracting me. You're distracting me. And it will then take more time to get back to where I was. You're distracting me. You're distracting me. You're distracting me. I'm going to make a new rule. In here, that means that I'm working. I'm working. I'm working. You're distracting me. That means don't come in. How do you think you can handle that? Penning Terror is a Fangoria Podcast Network original, produced and hosted by David Ian McKendry. Executive producers Dallas Sonnier and Phil Nobile Jr. Produced by Natasha Pacetta. Associate producer Jessica Safa-Vamer. Art and design by Jason Koslerich. Sound recording, design, and mixing by David Ian McKendry. For Fangoria, Brandon Wynardi.